Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Mountain West Wire football podcast, MWWire.com, at MWC Wire on most major social media sites, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Sometimes we remember that threads exist. This is not Jeremy Moss, uh, as you may be accustomed to. This is Matt, back from his uh, inadvertent hiatus, uh, now that I have successfully relocated to the East Coast. Uh, I am here relatively last minute. Apologies for that. To talk about what is a very big weekend in Mountain West football, Labor Day weekend, as we all know, is one of the more uh, underrated holidays anywhere in the calendar year, Uh, not the least of which is because we got 12 different Mountain West football games spread over three days. We're here. You know, week zero was sort of like the the amuse-bouche for the season. We got a few exciting games last Saturday. Now we're jumping into it. Whole hog starting on Friday night with Stanford at Hawaii, CBS Sports Network, 5 o'clock local time out there on the islands, 8 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Mountain. Cardinal currently a three-point favorite, which is sort of interesting to me because you know, we saw a, a pretty extended glimpse of the kinds of improvement that I think Warriors fans were expecting to see 
when they lost by only seven points on the road at Vanderbilt last weekend. You know, I was very impressed personally with what I saw from from you know the from Timmy Chang's team on both sides of the ball. You know, they got more consistent pressure than I think we had been accustomed to seeing over the last few years. They were able to protect Braden Shager on offense uh, a little more consistently than they were last year. And, you know, for his part, you know, with so many new weapons around him, Shager looked like he had taken a huge leap forward from the guy who was, you know, making very modest strides like other players on the team over the second half of last year. You know, he was 27 to 34, 350 yards against a, a Commodore's defense that had some talent. And so I think, you know, when you're looking at this particular Cardinal defense and you're looking at how successful the run and shoot was for the most part last week, it wasn't perfect, you know, in terms of like, you know, third down conversions, the Hawaii was only three of 11. That's probably going to have to improve. Although Chang for his, you know, to his credit for his part did prove that he was willing to be aggressive because they were also three of four on fourth downs as well. But I want to see if that run and shoot can maintain that run of excellence that they had for, for most of the four quarters that they had last week in Nashville. I want to see if Shager can beat a, a Cardinal secondary that is replacing, you know, a, a fair amount of talent. Like, um, uh, you know, Blue Kelly, he's in the NFL now. He was their top cornerback from last year. I believe they actually have four new starters, the Cardinal do. Uh, in their brand new secondary, they're running more of a four-two-five now under new head coach Troy Taylor, and I do think that you know there is some opportunity for the Warriors' pass catchers to be able to you know star in the same way that they did last week, maybe even more so, which is really saying something since both you know Stephen McBride and Pofelli Ashlock had you know, seven catches each on on seventeen combined targets between the two of them. Shager did a really good job of getting people involved. And I think that there's a pretty good chance that he should be able to do the same thing in this game uh, against the Cardinal. I think the other key that I'm also looking forward to, you know, can the Warriors do a better job of protecting Shager? Because, you know, on the whole, like if, if you just look at the stat sheet, it, it might seem like they did mostly fine in that regard. Like, you know, uh, Vanderbilt was credited with only two sacks uh, and you know, maybe uh, a little more concerning for quarterback hits. If you go look at how the performance shook out on Pro Football Focus, though, you see that in terms of like quarterback hurries allowed, Vanderbilt racked up at least nine of them last week, and and some of that had to do with you know newer guys that are that are in the starting lineup now. And I think most particularly, you you want to see a little bit of improvement from a guy like you know Kyan DeCambra stepping in at right tackle. Last, last week was his first career start, so you, you, you know, there's probably going to be a little bit of a learning curve with that in mind. But I do think that that could be a major concern because one thing that Stanford has, which Vanderbilt didn't necessarily have, at least not in my opinion, is some guys who could do some major damage in the pass rush. Uh, and I'm looking particularly at a guy like David Bailey, you know, was one of a few you know, true freshman to step into a starting role during David Shaw's uh, tenure as the Cardinal head coach. And he's that, you know, you know, that kind of edge rusher, six foot three, 240 pounds that could wreak a lot of havoc, you know, if, uh, you know, if guys like DeCambra and 
Josh Atkins aren't ready for it. You know, Atkins for his part had a pretty solid debut, you know, 59 snaps, no sacks allowed, only one quarterback hit. I think, you know, if I'm Hawaii, I want to see more of that because a guy like Bailey could do damage. And they also have a lot of other young guys who could feasibly step up and, and, you know, create a big play as well. You know, guys like Jackson Moy on the interior, um, or even a guy like, you know, Gaithan Bernadel, who came in from Florida International. He had, uh, I believe, over 100 tackles with the Panthers last year. So he could be, you know, a, a really key player in the middle of that Stanford defense. You know, he might be in a position where he can attack, you know, the line of scrimmage in the same way that Troy Taylor often did with his linebackers. And, and I think to a, a lesser extent, with you know players in his secondary at Sacramento State. On the other side of the ball, what I'm looking for is I want to see Hawaii keep up the level of pressure that they were able to generate just in terms of overall disruption. You know, last week they managed nine tackles for loss, which I think is a is a huge plus, considering that that was more TFLs than the Warriors had had in any single game last year. You know, and I think that's a credit to defensive coordinator Jacob Yoro and, you know, the kind of recruiting that, that the Warriors have done over the last couple of years to sort of bring in new pieces. You know, Isaiah Tufaga stepped up and had a big game last week. You know, he came in from, from Oregon State a couple of years ago, for example. Now, the Kuao Pihopa in from Washington you know, stepped in at nose guard and he had a pretty nice game last week. You know, and then, you know, next to that, you have, you know, holdovers like Andrew Choi. Had a very nice contest, two and a half TFLs in a sack. I want to see more of that because you don't really know what you're going to get out of this new look Stanford offense. We know from past precedents that Taylor is going to be running more of an off, an up-tempo offense relative to what we have been accustomed to seeing from David Shaw and before him, Jim Harbaugh at Stanford, you know, the more, uh, you know, the, the jumbo packages, the multiple tight ends. I have to think that, you know, even though Benjamin Urasek, yeah, the, <laughs> coincidentally enough, a tight end, might still be their best overall target on that side of the ball. I do think that you know, for for an offensive line, a Stanford offensive line, I should clarify, has four new starters up front. You know, Levi Rogers at center, uh, atop the depth chart that came out earlier this week, is the the only holdover from last year. And it was not a particularly good offensive line last year either, mind you. New guys up front, new quarterback, which if you, if you looked at the depth chart, we don't know who's going to see the lion's share of the snaps, or even if it's going to be a, a quarterback competition because they have Ashton Daniels or Justin Lampson, Syracuse transfer, or Ari Patu, who was uh, Tanner McKee's primary backup last year. A lot of an experience under center. And I want to see if this front six, this front seven, can continue to do damage and, and bottle up the passing game in particular. I think it may be a little tougher to do among the running backs because I think the one thing you could say about Stanford last year is that when their primary guys were healthy, they were not actually that bad. You know, EJ Smith, former, uh, you know, I should say former, he's the current son of uh NFL Hall of Fame legend uh, Emmett Smith, you know, when he was on the field last year, 
which granted was not for a huge amount of time, only played in two games. But let's not forget, he averaged almost seven yards a carry. Played very well in in two non or in two games against Colgate and USC before he was knocked out uh, for the rest of the year with an injury. Same thing with a guy like Casey Filkins, who you know ended up last year as the team's leading running back. You know, he only saw time in seven games for his own season-ending injury, but he proved, you know, in a in a pretty difficult stretch that he could be a bell cow type of guy. Um, you know, they, it wasn't always with um, the kind of returns that I'm sure the Cardinal were looking for. You know, against Oregon State and Notre Dame last year, he did average under three yards carry, but he had a stretch where you know, in four weeks between late September and mid October. For his injury that he had at least 20 carries so i have to think that if if the cardinal if, if taylor are looking to protect their quarterbacks wherever it is under center at any given point they're probably going to lean pretty heavily on smith and filkins and the other guys in that backfield i think i can't say for sure but i i think that no matter what you know if i'm a hawaii fan if i'm a mountain west fan staying up late on friday night to watch this game I want to see if that defense, that front seven can put together a similar kind of performance um, in terms of like, you know, making stops, making big plays and enforcing Vanderbilt or excuse me, forcing Stanford into tougher situations in the same way that they did with Vanderbilt last week. Let's not forget the Commodores were only five and 12 on third downs themselves uh, and were actually, and actually racked up more penalties. I could see a similar situation where Hawaii will be able to flip the script, especially, especially if they can finish in the red zone more consistently. You know, that was another thing that really defined the game last week were, you know, the two red zone turnovers that they had. Shager's interception was not a great decision. Um, and then, you know, just a, a really good defensive play by Vanderbilt on the other fourth down, the turnover on downs later in the game. If Hawaii can turn that, you know, that kind of situational football around, they should be in a position where they can steal this game, even despite the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that they are three-point underdogs. I think that bears out in the advanced stats as well. Uh, Bill Connolly's SP Plus metric does favor Stanford, but by only 5.2. Uh, they give them a, the Cardinal a 62% win probability. Um, Brian Fremo's FEI projections also favor Stanford by 6.7. And then uh, Parker Fleming at Stats O'War on Twitter. Um, he gives, you know what? He actually gives Hawaii a 52.87% win probability, projected margin of about 20 to, to 19. If you're looking to round up to solid numbers, 21 to 19. I think for my part, it's probably going to be a little more high scoring than that. But based off of what I saw of the run and shoot last week, Based off of what I saw in terms of the improvement by Jacob Duro's defense, I like Hawaii in this one. I'm going to take them against the spread, and I'm going to take them straight up. I think the Warriors hold serve at home 38-35. to All right, let's move on to Saturday now. Uh, starting bright and early for those of you on the West Coast, 9 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Mountain, Fresno State at Purdue. Yeah, you know, big road opener for the Bulldogs. Uh, and interestingly enough, Purdue rated as a three and a half point favorite uh, for a game that's going to be broadcast on the Big Ten Network. Big story coming into this one. Mikey Keene is your QB1. 
And I think that it's fair to say that there are very high expectations for him, especially after beating out Logan Fife, who, you know, as we talked about a little bit in the, in the team preview podcast over the summer, definitely showed improvement over week over week as he, as his stint last year, when, when Jay Kaner was hurt, you sort of demonstrated like he had a couple of nice games near the end of his brief tenure as the starter, so the fact that Keen was able to come in UCF transfer, win that job on the road against what could be a, a solid, you know, Purdue defense, it's going to be a big test for him. It's going to be a big test for an offensive line that also returns mostly intact. You know, there was some talk that Jacob Spelmer might move from left tackle to center, but you know, he's in the exact same spot where he started every game last year. Keen's going to be working with the. Uh, Basically, other than Eric Brooks, a brand new set of uh, wide receivers. You know, Magdalena earned a starting role. Boston College transfer Jalen Gill also earned a starting role. And so I, I am very interested to see how that lineup is going to match up against a, against a Boilermakers defense that has some interesting potential playmakers of its own. Um, you know, they brought in a pair of, you know, defenders in the on the front seven that could potentially do some damage. Uh, you know, Isaiah Nichols transferred in from Arkansas. He earned a starting role at defensive end. Uh, so did Malik Langham transferred in from Vanderbilt. Both of those guys didn't necessarily put up a lot of disruptive numbers with the Razorbacks, with the Commodores. But I have to think that there's going to be, you know, every expectation that they'll be able to set the table for some of the potential playmakers behind them. Like two of the big you know, big time productive guys that were, uh, I guess you might say their most disruptive defenders a year ago, Corday Sidnor and and Nick Scourton, both of whom are, are young guys that the, the previous staff really liked. Ryan Walters, the new Purdue head coach, also seems to really like them. They're listed one and two at the outside linebacker spot. I have to think that those outside linebackers, Scourton, Sidnor, and then also uh, Kydrin Jenkins, excuse me, are going to play a major role in whether or not you know Keen and company are going to be able to do some damage, especially since you know other than Cam Allen at, at cornerback and Sanusi Kane at safety, a, a fair amount of turnover in the Boilermaker secondary as well, and that was a unit that you know, for lack of a better term, you could beat them if you had a good enough passing game last year. Um, even in a lot of the games that Purdue ended up winning. Um, they ended up giving up a lot of big plays. Like, you know, Nebraska, for example, they won that game at home by six in mid-October last year, but they they allowed over 12 yards in attempt. Um, Wisconsin, not necessarily a, a strong passing game last year under Paul Christ, um, you know, 9.7 yards per attempt. Same thing at the end of the year when they had the, the blowout losses in the Big Ten Championship to Michigan and their bowl game against LSU nine and a half and 9.7 yards per attempt allowed. So I'm, I'm very interested to see if they can be able to pick apart the Boilermakers in, in the same way that strong offenses were often able to a year ago, especially since, you know, one of the guys that earned a, a spot in that new secondary, in that revamp secondary, true freshman Dylan Thieneman listed at, you know, six foot, 205 pounds, Obviously, you came in and must have earned a lot of trust right away to be able to step in opposite Allen. I I think it's going to be a very 
interesting matchup for both sides. I I have my doubts as to whether or not Purdue is going to be able to generate enough consistent pressure. But as we talked about during the team preview podcast, it wasn't like Fresno State's offensive line was what you might call top tier. You know, if you recall, I mentioned they had they allowed a 7.1% sack rate last year. That was only 84th in the country. But I do think that the amount of continuity that the Bulldogs are bringing back is going to end up working out in their favor. And, and some of the new guys that they brought in through the transfer portal, guys like Campbell McHarg, Kingsley Uwu, they seem to be set as you know depth pieces that the Bulldogs, if worse comes to worse, should feel confident about relying upon. On the opposite side of the ball, you also have another QB1, Hudson Card, who, you know, for, for Boilermakers fans, comes into that job with plenty of hype of his own. Uh, and, you know, coincidentally enough, maybe in a lot of respects, a very similar kind of situation where, much like the Bulldogs, they're starting over in a lot of places. You know, Charlie Jones is gone. You know, their, their tight end, who's got drafted, whose name escapes me, is gone. A few new starters on the offensive line, including... Uh, former UNLV guard Preston Nichols won the left guard job. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. You know, we know what Card can do. He was pretty solid in his time as a starter at Texas when he had the opportunity to do so. We know what Devin Mockaby, their lead running back, is going to bring to the table. What we don't know is how well that remade offensive line is going to be able to hold up because, you know, one thing that is sort of noteworthy about the Purdue depth chart coming into this game are the names that aren't there. Uh, you know, it was pointed out that Gus Hartwig, who, you know, comes into the year with, you know, over 20 starts for the Boilermakers, he's not going to suit up in this one. And, uh, and neither is tight end Garrett Miller, who I think was expected to be a, a big piece in this sort of renewed Boilermaker offense. You know, he had you know uh, 20 catches a couple of years ago, missed all of last year with an injury, apparently still not ready. Um, and even younger potential contributors like Zion Steptoe, also not in the two deep as well. So they do have TJ Sheffield coming back, and he did have you know 46 catches last year and four touchdowns, but they're also going to be counting a lot on some younger guys like Deion Burks, you know, won a starting job. He's a sophomore and last year played, you know, limited snaps only 15 receptions. So it's going to be really interesting to see what he brings to the table, what a guy like uh, Yassine Abdurrahman brings to the table. Uh, or Abdurrahman Yassine, excuse me, I had that backwards. You know, eight games, one start last year, you know, didn't necessarily light up the stat sheet, but that's because they had guys like Charlie Jones and the aforementioned 
uh, NFL drafted tight end Payne Durham, which is what I was thinking about. But he's gone. You know, Rashawn Rice uh, still around as well. He was a, a part-time contributor. But we know that the Bulldogs reinforced their defensive line. Devo Bridges is back. Gabriel Lightfoot is healthy. Isaiah Johnson earned a starting job. I'm very interested to see who's going to step up and replace David Perales as that sort of uh, what you might call the tip of the spear in terms of being able to, to rush the passer. Because I don't think there's going to be a lot of concerns about the secondary. You know, I think, uh, yeah, everybody's expecting Cam Walkers to have another awesome year. You know, a lot of eyes are on Carlton Johnson now as a breakout candidate. And, and Maurice Norris, we know what he can do at the nickelback spot. But I think whatever can be accomplished up front, you know, whether or not they can put pressure on card or even, you know, not necessarily even taking him down, but just putting hands on him, reminding him that they are there. We don't know who that guy is going to be or if they can accomplish that consistently as a group. And I think that that is going to play a major role in how this game ultimately unfolds. As for what the advanced numbers look at, um, you know, they also foresee a pretty tight one. Uh, SP Plus likes Purdue, but by only 4.4 points, 60% win probability. Um, FEI also likes Purdue uh, over Fresno State by 1.9 points. Uh, Parker Fleming, his advanced stats preview gives the Bulldogs a 46.7% win probability, a projected margin of about 27 to 25, 27 to 26. I tend to think that the advanced numbers are underrating the Bulldogs a little bit. I like Mikey Keene. I like the way that this offense comes together. I think that the defense bringing back uh, a lot of pieces, despite the questions about the pass rush that exist, which I think are, are, are you know, merit at least a mild bit of concern. I do think that the pieces that they have in the secondary should be able to give card and the rest of those uh, Boilermaker wide receivers fits. I like President State to win this one. I think it'll be close. I think they're going to end up coming out on top, though, 34 to 27. Kicking off at the same time, 10 o'clock local, or 10, excuse me, 10 o'clock mountain time, 12 o'clock Eastern, Utah State at Iowa. Going into uh, that game against the Hawkeyes as a 23 and a half point underdog. Uh, and just in case I didn't mention a minute ago, that game is on FS1. Very interesting times for the Aggies with so many new faces set to take on a lot and really critical roles on both sides of the ball. You know, we know who the quarterback is, which I think is a plus. Cooper Legault, the job is very clearly his, but you know, he's he's going to be thrown to a lot of new faces this year. Jalen Royals won a starting job. Terrell Vaughn is still around. Uh, he's going to hold down the slot. But, you know, one, it, it's a pretty clear narrative for how this game is going to unfold, which is to say, you know, with four new, three, three or four new starters, depending on your count, up front, Wade Meacham and, and Falapule Alo both back, how well are they going to be able to withstand an Iowa defensive line even without Lucas Van Ness, got drafted thriving with the Green Bay Packers, I believe. They've got a lot of talent back in that front uh, front six, front seven. How well are the Aggies going to be able to keep Legault on his feet? And then in turn, how well is Legault going to be able to take care of the football? 
because that was not always a strong suit for this offense last year. I mean, you may recall, I believe we brought it up there in the team preview podcast, 27 total giveaways for the Aggies last year. But when they took care of the football, as you might expect, it was when they ended up being at their best last year. They were only six and seven, but let's not forget, they only had eight turnovers in the six games that they won compared to 19 in the seven games that they lost. We talked about Lagan in particular during the team preview podcast. He's going to be really critical in this game because, you know, with just 10 interceptions and only 221 pass attempts last year, I believe that was roughly a, you know, a four and a half percent interception rate. They cannot afford that in a game like this, in a game where, you know, any number of guys, you know, take your pick, Cooper DeJean, Xavier Nwangpa, uh, Quinn Schulte, each of those guys could house an errant throw if the situation is right and their hands are in the right place. So, so one, you know, Lagaz got to take care of the football, but also, you know, that revamped offensive line has to give him time to be able to make plays to to be that creative playmaker that we saw him be at times last year. But that's going to be a really tall order, considering that you know Deontay Craig is still there, Logan Lee, Joe Evans. Those are three guys, by the way, that each had at least eight tackles for loss last season. So, you know, even without guys like Jack Campbell and Ben Ness in that front seven, the Hawkeyes are going to remain dangerous. They are going to be able to do some damage in the backfield. And and I guess that extends to, you know, guys like Robert Briggs and Davon Booth, too. I'm excited to see what that duo can do. But it also would not shock me if the Hawkeyes were effective enough up front in the trenches to you know keep those guys pretty quiet. Like I, I, I hesitate to say that it's going to be a lot like last year's game against Nevada, uh, especially since I don't think there's any lightning storms in the forecast out there in Iowa. But you never know. I, but I, I do think that you know the Aggies, if if they have a hard time running the ball in this game. At least, you know, presenting the the threat of keeping the Hawkeyes honest against the passing game, it's going to be really difficult for them to win up front. I think if if you're a Utah State fan, you're looking to get a similar kind of performance from your own defense, which again, maybe uh, it's going to be a really tall order. But you never know because this Iowa offense even despite the fact that they have a new quarterback Cade McNara was nicked up a little bit in fall camp I believe but you know he's earned the starting job he's there Caleb Johnson is a solid running back and you know they've got Luke Lachey and Eric All as you know top tight ends Nico Raggiani is back but if you're Utah State you're looking to get disruption up front too you know, you're looking for Hale Motuapuaka and and to to lead the way on the interior, and you're looking for those guys who flashed potential last year. And I'm thinking, you know, guys like Bo Miley, Seni Tuiaki, to to be able to step up and make waves as well. But I think it's going to be just as important for you know their new set of edge rushers, and th- and this is going to be a group effort. So I think it's less about you know who won the starting jobs. Let's say, in this case, you know, Inoka Miguel and Paul Fitzgerald. But I have to imagine they're going to give plenty of guys in that rotation plenty of opportunities to try and make some waves. So Sean Sloan, John Ward, also probably going to play you know very big roles in this game. 
especially since I don't think that they want to get into a situation where, you know, MJ DeVisi and Max Alford are, are continually having to clean up messes behind them. I don't think that Iowa's all of a sudden gonna gonna turn into uh, like a a thirty point threat overnight, uh, even with an upgrade at quarterback, even with you know upgrades at, at tight end and maybe along the offensive line as well. But if you're Utah State, you know you want to take advantage of that, an attack that you know wasn't in particularly in a hurry to score points last year. We talked about it during the team preview podcast, I believe. But like, let's not forget, Iowa only, was only 120th last year in terms of offensive points per drive, 1.31. And you know, Utah State, by comparison, we talked about it again, even despite their struggles last year, the Aggies did better than that. They were 92nd overall. And I think if you're looking for a key to this game, at a minimum, you don't want Iowa to chew up clock. Like you don't want them to sustain drives and, and play the field position game because like we haven't even talked about Tory Taylor yet either, but he's one of the best punters in the country, and everybody knows that the Hawkeyes are going to be more than happy to you know let the offense do its thing, and if it can't do its thing, then that's fine. You know, Taylor will pin Utah State at the ten and make them work their way down the field. But in terms of like points per drive, for example, it is definitely noteworthy. The Iowa was 130th in terms of like medium field position. So it's defined by Brian Vremo. When drives began between the offense's own 20 and 40 yard line, the Hawkeyes were even worse in that regard. 130th overall, 0.72 points per drive. If you're Utah State, that is something you want to take advantage of. You want to put Iowa in difficult situations. You want them in third and mid, third and long, if you can help it. And that's going to come up, I think, to a lot of the guys up front, whether it's Fitzgerald, Tuiaki, or any of the other guys just mentioned. It could very well be a slog. I I would have to imagine that Utah State would probably prefer it be a slog. I think that is the likeliest way that they're going to be able to stay in this contest. But you know, regardless, uh, you might say that the the advanced stats don't necessarily see uh, the Aggies having a good time of things in Iowa City. Um, I'm trying to pull it up real quick. My apologies. So SP Plus, for example, likes Iowa pretty big. Uh, they favor the Hawkeyes by 32.5. That's a 97 percent win probability. FBI also likes Iowa by 21.4. Parker Fleming at Stotes of War on Twitter. He gives Iowa a 73% win probability, 72.99 projected margin of uh, about 28 to 10. It may not be the most exciting game of the weekend. Um, it's it's going to be a rough one, I think, if you're a Utah State fan. I like Iowa in this one. I'm going to take them to cover that spread that I mentioned earlier. I'm going to say 31. Let's say 31 to. What am I looking at? Thirty-one to seven. All right, moving on. Uh, 11 a.m. Mountain Time. 
10 p.m. or excuse me, 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, Robert Morris Colonials at Air Force. Uh, that game is going to be on altitude if you're local. Mountain West Network streaming online if you're not. Uh, Air Force, I don't believe there's a line for this game. And uh, if you are at all familiar with Robert Morris, you probably would have bet Fal- the Falcons, even despite the major questions that they have on offense, that they that they are in the process of resolving. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the Falcons play it out in this game in particular, because Robert Morris, not great last year, winless. You know, we we know that they're you know starting over. They have a couple of nice pieces on the defensive side of the ball. You know, linebacker Joe Casali as a keeper, um, but this was not a, a unit that was uh, particularly successful last year. So even despite the fact that we have only slightly more clarity about who's going to play quarterback for the Falcons this year. Um, down to two, apparently, if you believe Troy Calhoun's depth chart, Zach Larrier or Jensen Jones. I have to imagine you're probably going to see a fairly, fairly healthy dose of both in this game. Same thing at fullback. Who's going to replace uh, Brad Roberts? Well, it's likely, most likely, I would say, to be Owen Burke or Jet Harris. But this strikes me as the kind of game where if you're Calhoun, if you're Mike Beeson and Brian Knorr, you just want to keep you want to get everybody healthy out of this game. You know, Dean Kinneman is back from the injury that you know stole most of his 2022 season. You know, is if he's back in shape, awesome. Um, if he, you know, they have all, you know, I believe two new starters in the offensive line. Ethan Jackman's gonna get the nod at guard, Mason Carlin at right uh or maybe left tackle, excuse me, to replace Everett Smalley. You know, what is that situation gonna look like? And then on defense, you know, we know that they're replacing, you know, some key pieces up front. Vince Sanford is gone. Uh, PJ Ramsey's in his place. Bo Richter shifted from the inside to the outside linebacker. Candy Goff is probably going to play more in that safety linebacker hybrid kind of role. But again, you're dealing with a with the Colonials offense that, you know, despite the fact they have four starters back on the offensive line from a year ago. You know, they have a couple of you know okay receivers. Parker Fetterman could do some damage out of the slot, but you know you're dealing with a new starting quarterback, Tyler Salkowski, in from Albany, won the starting job. You know, new running back, Clayton O'Sullivan. This this game probably doesn't need a lot of analysis. Uh, if you're an Air Force fan, you're expecting them to win this same to to win this game, in the same kind of vintage that they have in last year's uh, or previous seasons. Excuse me like they did against Northern Iowa, the Colgates of the world. Um, I'm going to take the Falcons to roll in this one. We'll keep it simple, 42 to nothing. All right, and then after that, we're moving to 12.30 Pacific, 1.30 Mountain Time, game of the weekend on over-the-air ABC. Honest to goodness, network television. You love to see it for Mountain West football. You got the Boise State Broncos on the road in Seattle against the Washington Huskies. And, you know, if you believe Vegas, it's going to be a very, very tall order for the Broncos to be able to keep up in this one. You know, even despite the fact that they're preseason favorites in the conference, they are still 14-point underdogs against the Huskies on the road. And it's it's honestly not hard to see why. You know, the Huskies have plenty of talent on both sides of the ball. But I think what's really going to make or break this game 
we know the caliber of talent that Washington has on offense in particular. You know, Michael Penix threw for over 4,000 yards last year, and basically all of his weapons are back. Roma Dunze, Jalen Polk, Jalen McMillan, Dylan Johnson in the backfield. But it's really that passing game that is likely to lead the to lead the way in this one. If you look at like Parker Fleming's advanced stats previews, for example, Washington was one of the teams that was most likely to just throw, throw, throw regardless of situation last year. If, if you look at their uh, rush rate over expected, you know, relative to the Broncos. Um, in 2022, and, and I think this is going to be really instructive for what to expect in this game, Washington's rush rate over expected was minus 15.2%, which essentially means that they were throwing the ball 15% more often in any given situation than you would expect them to. That was third in the country, and which may not be necessarily all that surprising given the caliber of talent that they have in that passing game. But it is going to mean that for 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 a Broncos secondary that has you know at least two or three new full time starters, you might you know depending on your count. Markel Reed is back from injury. He earned a starting job last year before suffering that season ending hurt. You know he's back in the starting lineup again. Jalen Clark flashed. Uh, you know down the stretch when he was given an opportunity. Alexander Tubner was solid as a backup and but you know all of these guys are in much bigger roles than they were before and they are going to have a very difficult time containing Udunze, Polk and McMillan for 60 minutes and so how well they're able to do that I think is going to be the one thing that defines whether or not Boise State has a realistic chance at an upset bid Especially since, you know, in the the rare instance where where Penix Jr. struggled last year, you know, even even in the games that they lost, it, I think it had more to do with limiting the big plays than anything. In the eleven games that the Huskies won, he averaged eight point eight yards per attempt. In the two games that they lost, which again were against on the road at UCLA, on the road at Arizona State, six point five yards per attempt. And maybe just as crucially, four touchdowns against three interceptions in in roughly 100 pass attempts. So when the Bruins and Sun Devils were able to get the better of this offense last year, it was because they were getting hands on the football just a little more often than everybody else was able to. And they did that while you know, Penix was was taking on even more responsibility than he usually was. In those two losses, he averaged 50 pass attempts. So I do think that if the Broncos can force Washington in a situation where Penix has to you know, put the game on his shoulders and and to be able to, you know, maybe force him into a mistake or at least force him into an incompletion every so often. That, I think, is going to be one part of the formula that lets Boise State play in this game because the other part of it is going to be just, you know, I think, controlling the clock with that ground game that was so strong for most of the second half of last year. So unsurprisingly, you know, we know what George Holani and Ashton Genty bring to the table, but they're going to need that offensive line to, you know, to hold on to a lot of its gains from last year because despite the fact that 
the Huskies have some talent in that front seven. And I'm thinking particularly about a guy like, uh, you know, Braylon Trice, all American type defender off the edge. You know, he is probably going to get his one way or another in this game. But Washington was not particularly adept at defending the run last year without adjusting for, 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 for sack yardage or anything like that. You know, the, the times that they were pushed most often were again in those two games that they lost UCLA and, and Arizona state both averaged over four and a half yards per attempt. And then later on in the season, when they barely squeaked by Oregon, you know, the ducks managed over six yards of carry, which I think is going to be a very high bar to set for, for any offense this year. But I do think that, you know, Boise State's going to have to survive by, you know, staying by, by keeping the, the Washington offense off the field by being able to chew clock at least a little bit here and there. And, you know, they're going to have to do it while also breaking in a couple of new starters up front. So, you know, the youngsters like Roger Carrion, who, you know, he only had one start last year and was kind of shaky. And that was really, and that was right before the shakeup that they had with Dirk Cutter and everything else that followed at the end of non-conference last year. You know, he's stepping into that right guard spot. They have Cage Casey, a sophomore, who won that job over the Texas Tech transfer, Ethan Card, at left tackle to replace John Ajupu. He's going to have, like, you know, Trice versus Casey might be the X factor in this game. Because I do think, like, if, if Hawani and Genty can get theirs and keep the keep the chains moving... You know, Taylor Green is exactly the kind of quarterback I think that can give this Washington defense fits. Because if they had one hindrance last year, it was that they, you know, they often you know gave up a lot during the air, especially when they when they were pushed. Again, those two games that they lost last year, eight point eight yards per attempt allowed, and then six touchdowns against only one interception. Green seems like exactly the kind of guy where if he gets enough time, even just to extend plays, that could be a major difference for him and for everybody that's been, you know, that he's going to be thrown to. Latrell Capel's obviously a big loss out for the year. But, you know, I liked what I saw personally from Eric McAllister down the stretch last year. Stephen Cobbs is back. He's healthy. And they seem to like what they have in some of their newer guys. You know, Chase Penry stepping up into a bigger role. Prince Strachan, the true freshman, you know, maybe he goes in there and catches exactly one 30 or 40 yard pass. He seems to have the ability to do that kind of thing. And Washington's defense got pushed around a lot last year. And that could be exactly the kind of thing that Boise State is in a position to exploit. If you think in terms of like available yards percentage that the Huskies allowed last year, again, they were 108 in that regard. They allowed 53% of yards per drive on an average basis last year. That seems to me to to me to be something that Boise State could take advantage of. But honestly, it's going to come down to whether or not the Broncos, I think more than anything, can match Washington point for point. And that I think is where you know the the rubber is really going to meet the road. So if you're looking at the advanced stats, um you might say that they have a maybe chance of doing it. Uh, SP Plus likes Washington by 13.8. That's a 79% win probability. FBI also likes the Huskies, but by only 
And then Parker Fleming has advanced stats preview gives the Huskies a shade under a 60% win probability, 59.98%, projected margin of about 35 to 27. For my part, I think it's likely to be a little more high scoring than that. I just don't know how well Boise State's going to be. I, I mean, I think this is the kind of game where they might miss Caples, maybe more so than a lot of other opponents to come in future weeks. So Washington is a 14-point favorite. I like them to win and to cover in this game. I think Boise State's definitely going to be able to put up some points in this one. Probably a backdoor cover, if anything, I envision. I'm going to say Washington 45, Boise State 30. Moving on to 1 o'clock Pacific, 2 o'clock Mountain Time. Heading to Las Vegas, Bryant at UNLV. No line for this one, FCS versus FBS. If you're local, this game is going to be on the Silver State Sports and Entertainment Network. If you are not local, uh, just be sure to stay tuned streaming through the Mountain West Network. This is a big year for the Rebels. And so what I want to see in this game is just to, to go out there and lead no doubt against a Bryant team that was maybe a little bit better than its record for last year, four and seven, might have suggested. And I think one big thing that's going to come down to that I really want to see in this game, one thing that the Rebels were very adept at doing last year was, you know, was creating takeaways. You know, 15 interceptions, I believe that was number one in the conference. But there was no doubt that as the year pressed on, they got pushed a little more often than I think they wanted to be. You know, you, you think about like the Fresno State game, for example, down the stretch, uh, or the Hawaii game that got away with them down the stretch. You know, both of those teams, you know, had over seven and a half yards per attempt. Both of those teams, three touchdowns, zero interception against the secondary that you know other than you know they are you know integrating a couple of new pieces they you know Noel Williams gone to Cal but you know Jackson Turner came in with a lot of hype from Arizona he's the starter at free safety opposite Jonathan Baldwin now um and then they also got Thomas Anderson winning one of the cornerback spots opposite Cameron Oliver it's going to be a big opportunity for these guys to come out and really set the tone because one of the things that the Bulldogs have is a pretty powerful passing game. We talked about it a tiny bit during the FCS minute over the summer when we did our UNLV team preview, but just as a refresher, they've got, Bryant does, one of the better quarterbacks anywhere in the FBS, excuse me, FCS, Zeviak House. Two seasons as the starter, he's thrown for over 5,500 yards, 47 touchdowns, He's the unquestioned guy, and he's got a lot of pieces that he could throw to, a lot of weapons that the Bulldogs feel good about. Landon Ruggieri last year, for example, 65 catches, 986 yards, and six touchdowns. Anthony Frederick, who, by the way, uh, All-American kick returner. So that's something that Rebels fans are going to be mindful of. You know, He is exactly the kind of guy that could flip this game, flip this game on its ear if the rebels aren't ready on special teams, you know, even he had, you know, 39 catches last year. He's has 14 career touchdowns with the bulldogs. 
Jalen Powell missed most of last year, but when he was healthy, he had five receptions a game as well. And they have an adequate running game as well. You know, Ryan Clark is mostly a short yardage guy, nine touchdowns on the ground. If I'm UNLV, if I'm a Rebels fan, I want to see this defense shut that down. I want to see the new guys in the front seven, you know, guys like, you know, Xavier Carter, you know, LSU guy who also came in with a fair amount of hype. I want to see him, you know, take Eckhouse down at least once in this game. Or, and if it's not him, maybe it's a guy like Elijah Shelton or Jalen Dixon at the defensive end position. You know, I'm, I'm very interested to see too what Jerry Williams does. As, you know, he's listed as the uh, strong side linebacker, but he was more of that nickelback type guy. So I'm, I'm interested to see what uh, new defensive coordinator Michael Shear has in mind for someone like him who demonstrated that he could do a little bit of everything last year. But if, I guess I'm interested to see if he plays more of like a, you know, a stand-up linebacker or if he's going to be expected to play closer to the line of scrimmage, maybe defending the slot, who knows. Um, and then on the other side of the ball, Bryant doesn't necessarily have a ton of playmakers up front. They do have one guy who could potentially cause headaches for what is a revamped left side of the offensive line. And the Rebels do have three new starters there. Jack has at center, Alani Makaheli at guard, Jalen St. John in from Arkansas at left tackle. Those guys are going to have to contend with Kenny Dyson, who was a big South first team all-conference selection last year. Eight and a half sacks a year ago. That was one of the best overall performances in the country on the FCS level. 16 and a half career sacks. And I think if you're looking for a saving grace, though, they don't have a lot of proven entities behind him or around him up front. So if if, if I'm looking for a big-time performance out of Brendan Marion's offense, you know, I want to see Doug Brumfield stretch the field. I want to see Ricky White get back to the form that he demonstrated in the early part of last year when he was lighting up Idaho State, when he was doing a lot of damage against North Texas. Um, but I also want to see the same thing out of Seneca McKee now that he's a full-time starter. I'm very interested to see how the performance that, you know, a guy like Jacob DeJesus, who is probably going to be the, the primary slot receiver, he generated a lot of buzz throughout the spring and the fall. Now let's see what he does now that the job is his on the field. Donovan Lester at running back, in from William and Mary, who if you if you weren't paying attention to FCS football last year, one of the best offenses anywhere on that level. You know, what kind of game, what kind of game are they gonna get out of him? I think, you know, if I'm a UNLV fan, you know, he six foot two, two fifteen, that sounds a lot like the guy that he's gonna be replacing. That sounds a lot like Hayden Robbins. And so I think it's fair to expect that he should be able to help this offense get off to a strong start. So if I'm UNLV, if I'm a fan, I'm going out to Allegiant Stadium, I'm expecting a big-time performance out of this offense, out of this entire team. I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but SP Plus, uh, just sort of cycling back to the Air Force game for a moment, uh, SP Plus did have a number for Air Force. They favor the Falcons, by the way. 44.8. Uh, that's 100% win probability. But moving on to UNLV once more, they favor, uh, SP Plus does rather, they favor them by 14.6 over the Bulldogs. That's an 80% win probability. 
I do think that Bryant might be able to do a little bit of damage in this game, but this seems like exactly the kind of matchup where, you know, the Rebels have a lot of excitement coming into this game. They should be able to demonstrate it. So I like the Rebels to win pretty big in this one. I'm going to say 42 to 20. All right, so we're moving later into the afternoon now. 3.30 Pacific, 4.30 Mountain, Pac-12 Network. Uh, for the second straight week, a Mountain West opponent going to Southern California. Nevada taking on number six USC. Uh, good luck trying to find that one. It's on the Pac-12 Network. Um, also, you know, good luck to the Wolf Pack. <laughs> I'm just uh, looking at the latest line for this game, and it uh, it is not necessarily pretty uh the wolf pack are a 38 and a half point underdog against the trojans which uh you know that does not necessarily surprise me may not surprise anybody to be honest usc looked about like i expected last week against san jose state uh caleb williams won the heisman last year and remains pretty good uh, and and I would say on paper that the Wolfpack are probably not as talented as the Spartans, and so you know I think if you're if you're a Nevada fan, you're probably keeping your expectations relatively low on this one. I think what I'm looking for is just some kind of resolution to the questions that really dogged the Wolfpack throughout last year, Ken Wilson's first year at the helm. So we know that Brendan Lewis, for example, is QB one. But is he going to play the entire 60 minutes against this Trojans defense? Which, you know, you know Siobhan Cordero was able to you know, do at least a fair amount of damage last week. You know, only 198 yards, but he did have three touchdowns. You know, he and Nick Nash had a, had a very big connection, as I'm sure Jeremy talked about in last week's recap. But the Trojans did not necessarily get a ton of pressure on him throughout the game. You know, they did have seven TFLs, but, you know, the the stat broadcast only credits them with one quarterback hit. And so I do think that there might be an opportunity there where if we don't necessarily know whether USC is necessarily going to have a particularly potent pass rush, especially since they're replacing, uh, you know, his name escapes me, John Tui, I forget what his name is, Tui Tui, to eat to I believe. We don't know if they necessarily have answers up front that they can rely upon. And so I think, you know, if, if I'm a Wolfpack fan, I'm looking for Lewis to sort of get his feet under him, if not necessarily to light the world on fire, then to avoid any obvious mistakes. I think that's a bare minimum to expect against the Trojans defense that was not great last year when it wasn't generating a lot of turnovers. And you know, with especially with what we saw, for example, of a guy like Dalavon Campbell down the stretch last year, I think he, it is pretty clear that he's their number one guy. So, like, what is he going to be able to do lined up against someone like you know Christian Roland Wallace, who you know there was a, a thing on on Reddit the other day. I don't know if anybody noticed it about how apparently he probably should not have played the first half of that game last week because he was suspended the year before in the season finale. Uh, when he was playing with Arizona. So maybe there's a little bit of NCAA issue to work out there. Maybe San Jose State is owed a forfeit win. We'll see. That's sort of beside the point. But that, you know, the, the story being that 
you know, Nevada has a lot of new faces on the offensive side of the ball, not just Lewis, but, you know, Sean Dollars, Nash, and Hayes, probably going to be responsible for the Lions' share of the workload replacing Tawatawa and Devontae Lee. What are they going to be able to accomplish up front? Because, you know, one thing that is maybe a, a, a little bit encouraging is the fact that Quali Conley was able to go off for at least one big run last week. He had the 57-yarder Kyrie Robinson. Yeah, you know, um, was mostly held in check, only 28 yards on nine carries last weekend, but he did have that one 20-yard run. And I think if if you're a Wolfpack fan, you're looking for something similar. Maybe you're not looking for 150 yards on the ground, but you're looking for at least a handful of big plays to keep the Wolfpack offense from being continually backed up. And that's even despite the fact that you know their 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 offensive line, you know, a couple of new starters up front as well. You know, who knows what you're going to get from them, but it seems like it should be a, a manageable matchup. I don't know if you can necessarily say the same thing about this Wolfpack defense against that USC offense, because you know, what San Jose State was able to accomplish last week was not too bad. You know, Pro Football Focus, you know, credits the Spartans with, you know, eight quarterback hurries. You know, Brian Parham, who I'm sure I'll talk about in a minute when we get to, to San Jose State in their matchup this weekend. You know, two hurries, one sack. It really led the way in that regard. I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows when their Nevada is going to be able to get close to that. Because, you know, there, there are a lot of familiar faces up front. You know, Henry Ikai Kahifo back in the fold after some time away at Cal. You know, James Hansen had plenty of playing time last year. Dwight to- Toyola. You know, Marcel Walker, Elijah Winston, you know, all of those guys saw a fair amount of time last year. But we don't know what the Wolfpack is going to offer in terms of disruption up front. Now that Dom Peterson is gone, you know, Jeremy likes to say I'm like the, the number one Dom Peterson fan. And that was with big reason. Like last year, when Nevada needed a big play in the backfield up front, he was the guy that did it. You know, 13 TFLs. Nobody else on the team had more than five. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on every single guy that's in that two deep, including the the holdovers who were the most productive, who are back for this year. You know, Dion Washington and, and Thomas Witt, you know, combined for nine TFLs last year. They need to do their part to keep the guys behind them. You know, Drew Watts, Trey Weed at the nickelback position and, and Naki Mate Ayalona. If those guys are, are racking up like 9, 10, 12 tackles without, you know, necessarily a lot of, you know, plays up front, you know, being made, if USC is running roughshod against this Nevada defense, then that that's going to be a problem because we know Williams, we know Dorian Singer, we know all of the guys who are likely to be the you know, most uh, you know, appropriate playmakers for the Trojans throughout this year. And man, if they can't get pressure up front, it's going to be a long afternoon for everybody in the defensive backfield. You know, Isaiah Sistema is is you know flashed pretty good. You know, flashed signs that he could be a, a potential lockdown corner this fall. But even I don't know if he even he is going to be good enough to match up against Singer and, and company for sixty minutes. And that's to say nothing of the other new guys that they're breaking in to the secondary: Aiden Sayuli, Richard Tony, KK Meyer. There's going to be a lot of pressure on all these guys all the way around. 
And I don't know if I necessarily like Nevada's chances of handling that. By the advanced numbers, it seems like they don't necessarily like the Wolfpack's odds either. SP Plus likes USC by 37.7. That's a 99% win probability. FBI also likes the Trojans by 27.7. Parker Fleming, his advanced stats preview gives the Wolfpack a 15.05% win probability. Projected margin of 42 to 10. Honestly, I think the Wolfpack are going to be lucky if they get 10 points. I just, I don't know what that offense is going to look like. And until until I see them do some damage against a, a suspect Trojans defense, I'm going to withhold judgment. Or I'm going to withhold optimism, rather. I'll judge plenty. We'll see. But <laughs> we'll see how the recap podcast goes in a few days. I like Nevada, or excuse me, I like the USC to win and to cover. I'm going to say, I don't know, let's say uh, 49 to 3. 5 p.m. Mountain Time, 4 o'clock Pacific. Big time game at Canvas Stadium, Fort Collins, Washington State at Colorado State, CBS Sports Network, uh, Washington State. Currently an 11-point road favorite over the Rams. This one is pretty simple. You know, what we want to see, because we saw these two teams match up last year and the Rams did not have good time of things in Pullman. But I don't think it's necessarily going to take all that much to be able to turn things around. I think the, the question that everybody wants to know, how well is Colorado State's remade offensive line going to be able to hold up against a, a Cougars defensive line that returns plenty of dangerous guys up front, all of whom ate pretty well against the same Rams team last year. And I'm thinking particularly of the edge trio that, that the Wazoo has. Brennan Jackson, who led the team with 13 TFLs last year. Ron Stone, very dangerous in his own right, back for one last round. Quinn Roth. All three of those guys did damage against the Rams last year. And so what I'm looking at are, you know, the, the reality that CSU has two new starters of both tackles positions, two transfers, Savion Henderson, Drew Moss, both come into the roles with plenty of starting experience. And that's one thing that you can say about this year's starting five, at least as, at least it is, as it is listed on the depth chart, you know, Oliver Jervis, even Jacob Gardner slotting in at, at center after spending most of his career to this point at left tackle. All those guys have at least 20 games of starting experience, but how well are they going to mesh? Because they absolutely have to be better about giving Clay Millen time if this team wants to be as explosive as they wanted to be last year. Because we saw glimpses of it. I remember seeing them here and there. But if they can't keep Millen on his feet, if those edge rushers are able to set the tone against this retooled line, then it's it, it could end up looking like more of the same. Because I do think if they can give Millen a chance to, to strike deep, we know what Tory Horton can do. I also think that there are plenty of reasons to get excited about the other guys who are likely to be major contributors. You know, Justice Ross Simmons showed up in the second half of last year. Lewis Brown flashed here and there. Dylan Goffney. And from SMU, what is he going to offer? He proved that he could be a, be a big play guy for the Mustangs in limited duty. 
I also think that there's also going to be an opportunity for the, you know, that running back duo of Kobe Johnson, who I'll say again, could be one of the biggest transfer portal pickups that any team had this offseason. Last year's leading rusher at North Dakota State, can he, can Avery Morrow get back to setting the tone that was really at the heart of, of where the Rams offense was most successful in the second half of last year, where the, where the passing game stuttered and where they had you know, that, quarter, yeah, that, that quarterback turnover you know, where, where Millen was, was injured and he missed a couple of games in the middle of the season. It was really that running offense that sustained them. And, and Morrow in particular deserves a lot of credit for that. But I want to see whether or not he can take a step forward because, you know, 4.8 yards per carry last year is good. Can, can he get five in this game against this front seven? Can, can Johnson get five? I think if, if one of those guys can do that, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the Cougars to be able to respond Especially since, you know, despite the talent they have up front, there's there's a lot that's unproven in the middle of that defense. You know, because, you know, some of last year's, you know, top performers that the Cougars had, you know, Francisco Mauigoa, who missed last year's LA Bowl, you know, sat out. He's gone. Uh, Travion Brown, I believe, also gone. So the Cougars are starting, you know, some guys who really only have had limited you know, starting experience in the past, you know, Kyle Thornton being one example. I think that LA Bowl last year against Fresno State was his first career start. I think there is opportunity for the Rams to be able to, you know, take advantage of what like opportunity rate, you know, the, that ability to get to the second level. If that offensive line can open holes consistently and, and keep Jackson, Stone, and Roth and others on that defensive line at bay, that I think is going to be the key for them. But I also think that there is going to be plenty of opportunity for Millen, if he can get that time, to be able to do some damage through the air as well. Because the, the Cougars do have some very good players in that secondary. Chow Smith-Wade, I think, is is one of them. You know, Jaden Hicks is a very you know strong, you know, promising up-and-comer at strong safety. Cam Lampkin, who you may remember from his time as Utah State, has earned a starting job. But... You know, if you're a Rams fan and Tory Horton, we trust, right? Like you expect that he'll be able to match up and ball out against any cornerback, fortunate or unfortunate enough, as it were, to to line up against him. And so I do think, you know, that that offensive line protection is going to is going to go a long way for a number of different reasons. And then on the other side of the ball, like we we know that Washington State was also able to really bully the Rams up front as well. You know, Cameron Ward had one of his better games of the year last year against these same Rams. But again, like you're you're talking about a remade unit against a Rams defense that, you know, is probably not going to be the same one that this Cougars won or th- that these Cougars saw early last year. And that's because, you know, as, as Rams fans will tell you, if you were paying attention, this was a unit that improved down the stretch. And I do think that, you know, where Ward was able to really have his way in this game last year, now all of a sudden he's going up against a, a, a secondary that might be pretty good all the way around. Like last year, they didn't have to deal with Aiden Hector, for example. You know, they they didn't have to deal with Ron Harji, who, you know, stepped in and now he's going to be starting opposite Shugosi Anusia on one of those cornerback spots. 
and and they're you know while they are necessarily dealing with some turnover up front the rams are we know that muhammad kamara can set the tone we know that they've got a couple of interesting up and coming pieces up front you know grady kelly i think is is the leading one and, and they have some new arrivals that they seem to to be very fond of that think that they make a difference you know marshawn oxley for example backing up uh, kamara one of the defensive end positions or a guy like newer gatkow who you know retro sophomore earning that defensive end spot opposite Kamara. You know, there, there is a lot that is unproven in that front six, and that's especially true at linebacker too. You know, Drew Kulik no longer uh, a starting. I, I don't think he's even with the program. Uh, memory serves, I forget, and I apologize. You know, Justin Sanchez and Chase Wilson are going to be stepping in, and I believe they're both making their first career starts in this one. But there's a lot of potential there. And even despite the fact, you know, Ward is pretty good. Nakia Watson is that same kind of, of reliable guy who may not blow you away running the ball or catching the football, but he does both well enough to be able to keep defense honest. Like they're replacing a lot up front too. You know, they do bring back Maake Fafita, Connor Gomnes, but their, their left tackle from last year, Jarrett Kingston is gone. So Kamara matched up against, you know, Esapole, who's listed atop the depth chart at left tackle. That's going to be a key matchup right there. And, you know, for as for as much as, as Colorado State remade their wide receiver unit last year with guys like Horton and Ross Simmons, Wazoo is doing the same this year. And they're doing it with a lot of familiar faces. Josh Kelly, you're likely to see a lot of him after his time at Fresno State. Kyle Williams is in from UNLV. Um, and then some you know, newer names, Cooper Mathers, Billy Riviere. It's going to be really interesting to see how that all comes together. But I think if I'm a Rams fan, I like what they were able to accomplish down the stretch last year, where they were improving on a yards per play basis month after month. So by the time they were in November, they were, aver- they were averaging only 4.3 yards allowed per play. And maybe some of that had to do with the the caliber of offense that they were playing down the stretch. You know, the Wyoming and, and New Mexico come to mind immediately. But, you know, they they held their own against Air Force more often than you would be accustomed to in recent seasons. They played San Jose State pretty tough. So there is potential there for the Rams to be able to hold on to their gains or even make a, a, make a step forward. It's going to take a lot for that to come together, but I think it's not an impossible task for them to be able to turn this, you know, last year's result around and to be able to come out on top of this one. I don't know if their advanced numbers necessarily agree. SP plus likes Wazoo by 18.8. That's an 86 points, uh, 86% win probability. FBI also likes the Cougars by 16.9 and Parker Fleming, his advanced stats preview uh, gives the Rams only a, 34% win probability, 34.74% projected margin of 28 to 18. This is a game where I think the Rams should be much more competitive from than last year. I like the Rams enough to take plus 11 in this one. I don't know if I like them enough to win outright, but I do think they're going to make Wazoo work for it. I have... Washington State winning this one 31 to 21. Picking off at roughly the same time in College Station, 5 o'clock Mountain, 4 o'clock Pacific. 
on ESPN, New Mexico, traveling to Texas A&M. The Lobos uh, currently 38 and a half point underdogs on the road, which, you know, I guess I guess if you're if you're Vegas and you're thinking about last year's Lobos, you can understand why they would have such a widespread you know, in their history, New Mexico has never beaten Texas A&M. They, uh, you know, Aggies lead the series five nothing. They weren't necessarily competitive a couple of years ago when they played. They got blown out on the road last year against LSU. But I was there for dramatic effect. But what I want to see in this game is just how much better the offense can be, the New Mexico offense, that is despite the circumstances that they're walking into because everybody knows it's not going to be a secret that they're going into this game with a huge talent disparity on both sides of the ball. Like, you know, on the one hand, New Mexico's offensive line is bringing back a fair amount of experience. You know, DJ Wingfield is hundred percent healthy. He's back in the starting lineup. You know, CJ James is solid. JC Davis is solid. But, it, but you know, they're, they're still dealing with the likes of, uh, oh, I don't know, McKinney, McKinley Jackson, uh, Walter Nolan, Shamar Turner. Huge amounts of talent with, uh, you know, probable NFL futures on the defensive line. And then, oh, by the way, behind them, you know, Edrin Cooper, who was pretty good himself last year, Chris Russell. Um, and then, you know, other young guys like Torian York and, and Lebes, uh, Lebeus Overton. Who, you know, depending on how the game shakes out, if it does turn it into the walk that I'm, I'm assuming the tenth, the twelfth man is expecting it to be, then a lot of those guys are going to be, you know, seeing a lot of snaps in the second half, especially. No matter, you get a new quarterback, Dylan Hawkins. He is your guy. You have a, a, an offensive line that has gone through trials by fire. You have a lot of new weapons in place around him. You know, some that we talked about during the team preview, DJ Washington, you know, Juco guy looks like a, an explosive playmaker. You know, what's he going to be able to do? Jeremiah Hickson in from the transfer portal as well. Uh, you know, Magnus Gears in from the transfer portal. And then you have, you know, new, newer potential standouts like, uh, excuse me, Ja'Cory Krosky Merritt or in the starting job at running back. You have so many new faces that are going to contribute to both the ground game and the passing game. What are they going to do in the most d- difficult circumstances that they're likely to face all season long? I just want to be, I want to see something. I don't want to see the same kind of lifeless offense that we saw more and more often as 2022 progressed. You know, you know, maybe a guy like Jackson or maybe a guy like, you know, Cooper or maybe, you know, if, if, if Hopkins makes a mistake and Damani Richardson picks it off for, or an interception or something like that. Maybe that's not necessarily a big deal because yeah, I have to imagine that guys like Richardson, those veteran talents, those insanely, you know, four and five star talents that Texas A&M gets year after year, they're going to get theirs one way or another. But you got to show me something. You can't average like let's say fewer than four yards of play. Punch it into the end zone at least once. I think that's a reasonable expectation, but I want the conversation about this game afterwards to be is I want Texas A&M fans melting down about the fact that New Mexico looked much improved against them. And I I, I would say that that's also true when you're thinking about the Lobos defense versus the, the A&M offense. 
the Aggies, that was not a strength of theirs last year by any stretch. And, and even despite the fact that like their quarterback situation is more or less settled. Connor Wiegman is the starter. You know, Jimbo Fisher confirmed that earlier this week. That's settled. You know, we know what they're going to get out of Anaya Smith if he's healthy. Who's Muhammad, Evan Stewart. Like that's as talented a trio as the Lobos are going to face all season long. And then, the you know, the running back trio that they have, Ruben Owens, the true freshman, you know, supplementing guys like Le'Veon Moss and Amari Daniels. Yeah, the Lobos are replacing a ton at all three levels of the ball. But I'm very interested to see if the linebackers, now that everybody's healthy, and I'm thinking particularly about guys like Alec Marenko, Ray Lutelli, Sayer Riley, who we mentioned during the Team Preview podcast, all three of those guys missed some or most of last year with various hurts. Can they come in and do damage for Troy, Troy Rapid in that revamped 3-3-5 defense? Can Tavian Combs get back to being the same kind of playmaker that we saw when he was back to 100, you know, when, when he was healthy last year before his own season-ending injury? What can a new guy like Dimitri Johnson do? He won a starting job. That must have been for a very good reason. Is he going to be someone that attacks the quarterback? What kind of production are they going to get up front from guys like Kyler Drake, from Washington State transfer Gabriel Lopez, Tyler Keene, who, you know, from based on recent quotes, looks you know much stronger, much bigger at nose tackle. They need something. If they're going to give the Aggies fits in this game. So it, I'm not expecting them to go out and light the world on fire. But, you know, the, the, the A&M offensive line is not so sturdy, especially since I believe Steve Adazio is still their offensive line coach. Absorb that information for what it's worth. But, you know, if you're looking at the depth chart, which it, it's it's worth noting that the Aggies didn't actually release formal depth chart that I can find. So I'm going off a projected depth chart that Good Bill Hunt, Good Bull Hunting over at SB Nation put out a couple days ago. You know, you're looking at a unit that could be starting three sophomores, a couple of redshirt sophomores, as well as some guys who are working their way back from injury. If New Mexico can make a couple of stops, maybe maybe a sack, couple sacks, maybe like four or five TFLs. What I don't want to see, same as on offense, I don't want to see this this defense, this front six get bullied. I want to see them give this secondary combs, Martin, the other new guys who have been elevated to the starting lineup, guys like Zach Morris, Noah Pola Gates. I want to see this front six give that back five a fighting chance even despite the talent disparities on both sides of the ball. Again, you're probably looking at a situation where the advanced numbers don't necessarily like Mexico's chances of doing so. SB Plus favors Texas A&M, for example, by 41.6. That is a 99% win probability. Um, FEI echoes that to a slightly lesser extent that they also favor the Aggies by 30.9. Parker Fleming his advanced stats preview gives the Lobos a 24.87% chance of winning, uh, projected margin of roughly 33 to 7. I like the Lobos to cover, mostly because I'm not enamored of Texas AM. I continually think, and I think I said this on Twitter at NWC Wire sometime back, that they are probably the single most overrated team in the country. Um, so even, even at 38 and a half. 
give me the logos to cover. I don't I don't think they'll win. I do think the Aggies are likely to win comfortably. It feels like a game that Texas A&M fans aren't going to be happy with when all is said and done. I have the Aggies winning 38 to 10. Moving on to 5:30 Mountain Time, 4:30 Pacific. Again, over the air, CBS. You've got Texas Tech, number 24 in the Kosher Bowl, traveling to Laradice to take on the Wyoming Cowboys. Should be a very, very interesting matchup, even despite the fact that Wyoming is a 14-point underdog at home as we speak. And, you know, with Cowboys, it's it's another big home game against the Power 5 opponent. And, you know, the, the memories of that matchup against Missouri several years ago is not so far in the distant past that Texas Tech probably isn't thinking about it. I think they know about as well as anybody that they can get tripped up. But Wyoming, for their part, if they want that upset, like they have to find answers to some of the things that plagued them when they were at their worst last year. And you know, one big thing it's, I think it's going to come down to, can they win between the tackles on offense? And the reason I say that is because they have two new starters at both guard positions, relatively new starters, Wes King and Jack Walsh. That duo, along with their returning center, Noah Fuafia Tulafono, was solid in his own right in his first year as a starter last year. But that trio is going to have a very tall task on their hands, having to deal with the interior duo, the Red Raiders, Jalen Hutchings and Tony Bradford. Maybe the most experienced defensive tackle tandem anywhere in the country. I believe, if my math is correct, that they have 61 career starts between them. Uh, and last year, they had 14, ta- 14 and a half tackles for loss between the two of them as well. So we, I think we can take a guess that Wyoming is going to lean heavily on its ground game in order to really set the tone and, and keep the chains moving, you know, rather than putting so much pressure on Andrew Peasley or, or, or unexpectedly flipping the script or anything like that. So, you know, that interior trio is going to have to prove that it can handle its own against a very experienced and a very talented defensive tackle group. And they're going to have to do it while also recognizing, you know, DeWyan McNeely is unavailable. I believe he is also out for the year. I forgot to look that up, and I apologize if I'm wrong about that. But, you know, Jamari Farrell won the job, listed atop the jump chart, heading into week one. It's a big opportunity for him. I have to imagine he's going to get 20 carries one way or another. So what are those 20 carries going to look like? Are they going to open holes consistently enough for him that it is a 2080 performance? Or is it going to be like 20, 120, give or take, and a touchdown? The latter is going to put themselves in a much better position to be able to hold serve and steal a win at home. But at the same time, like they have to get more out of the passing game too. That's no secret. And they're going to have to do it against uh, the, yeah, they have, you know, the raid Raiders do uh, a remade secondary coincidentally enough with two guys who played pretty well in the mountain West over the last couple of years, CJ Baskerville is in at that sort of nickelback safety linebacker hybrid spot. Now after starring at San Diego state, Braylon Lux transferred to 
Lubbock, and now he's a starter at cornerback. And then they also have, you know, Dadrian Taylor Demerson back, Malik Dunlap back. So it's a secondary that knows what it's doing. And Peasley has to prove that he can take care of the football, that he can make plays. Because if he can't, like if it's if it's third and six, let's say, and they need him to make a play and he comes up short, they can't afford to waste a lot of those kinds of opportunities to be able to hang around in this game because the Red Raiders, you know, they may not be known generally for defense, but they've got a lot of talent on that side of the ball that could pretty easily put the Cowboys away and win this game going away if Wyoming's not careful. On the other side of the ball, I think there is a strong possibility that Wyoming matches up fairly well with what the Red Raiders want to do on offense. And and I say that knowing that they have plenty of talent here as well. Um, you know, they you know have rusty stats. You know, he would, I think is one of the more experienced centers anywhere in the country. He comes in here in the starting job after you know, having, I believe, uh, you know, 27 starts at his old college. Um, you know, Cole, same with Cole Spencer starting at left guard now. So, you know, they do have some turnover on the offensive line, but we all saw what the Wyoming defensive line did as a group last year. And if they want to have a shot in this game, they've got to come out firing. So far as we know, everybody's healthy. Sebastian Harsh is healthy. He's in, he's atop the depth chart. You know, that's a big deal for them. You know, you heard stories about, you know, walk on Ben Florentine, you know, winning a job in their in the rotation at least, you know, opposite Gavin Meyer behind Cole Godbout, Jordan Bergnall. Can they do some damage against this rebuilt Red Raiders offensive line? Because if they can't, I don't know if it's necessarily a big F, but if they can't, Tyler Shaw's a, a good enough quarterback to be able to do some major damage. Taj Brooks is a very talented running back in his own right. Duran Bradley. You know, only a sophomore, but, you know, he was an up-and-coming guy last year. Led the team in receptions, receiving yards, and touchdowns as a freshman last year. There's plenty of talent on that side of the ball. But I do think that there's plenty of, of chances for Wyoming to be able to set the tone and, and frustrate Texas Tech in a way that they didn't always you know, fall into last year. Like you look at situational stats and when the Red Raiders were forced into third down situations, that was not always their strong suit. And maybe some of that has to do with the fact that they had some turnover at the quarterback position throughout last year. But it is worth noting, I think, that of teams in last year's Big 12, the Red Raiders had the second worst third down conversion rate on offense. And that was especially true when they dropped back to pass. 108 pass attempts on thirds down last year, only 55.6% completion rate, only 31 conversions in those situations, 31 out of 108 pass attempts. So that's something to think about if you're a Wyoming fan, because I think if you can set the tone on early downs, force the Red Raiders into more difficult third down situations, those may be more 50-50, and Wyoming fans would like it is probably just as likely that Shao, you know, finds you know threads the needle, finds guys like Bradley, Miles Price, and whomever, 
to be able to you know keep the chains moving. But that's going to be the way that Wyoming stays in this contest, I think. That, I think, is what gives them the best chance to do so. I don't know if the advanced numbers necessarily agree because they all tend to favor Texas Tech pretty heavily. SB Plus likes the Red Raiders by 18.4. That's an 86% win probability. Uh, FBI is a little more favorable to the Cowboys, but they still favor Texas Tech by 9.9. Parker Fleming, his advanced stats preview gives the Red Raiders a just under 60% win probability. 60-40, you might say. Projected margin of 33-25. to 25. I don't know if it'll be that close. And that's mostly because I'm concerned about the Wyoming passing game. I just, I don't know what I'm going to add a piece. I don't know what I'm going to get out of Peasley. If he can get back to the way that he looked throughout most of non-conference play last year, the Cowboys are going to have a serious shot of winning this one. As it is though, they have just enough questions on that side of the ball where I, I am comfortable taking the Cowboys to cover 14 at home. I just don't think they're going to be able, I don't think they're going to be able to pull off the upset. I have Texas Tech winning that one. I'm going to say 28 to 17. All right, now moving on to the nightcap, one of two at least on Saturday, 7.30 Pacific, 8.30 Mountain Time at Snapdragon Stadium, Idaho State taking on San Diego State, 1-0 San Diego State on CBS Sports Network. No line for this one, as you might expect, you know, FCS versus uh, FBS again. This one, again, pretty straightforward. You, I want to see San Diego State put together the same kind of defensive performance that they did last week. That was really what set the tone, especially after you know, Ohio quarterback Curtis Rourke got knocked out of the game. That was really what led the way for them. Like the, the stats don't necessarily blow you away. You know, only one sack, you know, three TFLs, but they forced three interceptions. They had eight pass breakups. That secondary was active. They were all over the place. If you're an Aztecs fan, you know, that's just business as usual. That's what you're expecting in this one, especially since, you know, you're looking at, a, you know, an Idaho State team that is, you know, was not particularly good last year and is starting over in a lot of respects on both sides of the ball. New starting quarterback, Matthew Caballero. It, you know, it may be that they have two or three guys play because he's, he's uh, hung with an oar. Could be Jordan Cook or Jordan Hayes too. Same thing at wide receiver, same thing at tailback. There's basically oars at every single position on the Idaho State too deep. That should tell you everything you need to know about what to expect from San Diego State in this game. PFF credited the defense with 12 hurries last week. In addition to their sacks, five quarterback hits. They should be able to match that, if not exceed it pretty easily. On offense... It's, it's also pretty simple. I want to see more of the offense that came to life in the second half when you know they, they fell into an early deficit, got off to a sluggish start. Only two, three and outs last week against the Bobcats. But you know, I look at you know the fact that of their last five drives, you know, one was the turnover on downs with less than a minute to go. So maybe that doesn't count. I'm looking at that four drive stretch starting right before halftime, going all the way into the middle of the fourth quarter, 
three out of four drives and went for 70 plus yards and accounted for 17 of the 20 points that the Aztecs were able to put up last weekend. I want to see more of that because I do think that Jalen Maiden took care of the football. He was very strong in that regard, you know, and they got, you know, at least some of the questions about, okay, well, who's going to catch the ball? You know, we, you know, they are going to feature the tight end a little more uh, frequently after all. Mark Redman had a big game last week. Makai Shaw broke out, which I suspect that he might do. He was, you know, a very underrated player down the stretch last year. And then they also got some nice contributions from, you know, other role players. And Balin Brooks had a couple of nice catches. So, you know, we'll see. I, it, it seems like the kind of game where, you know, if, if you're looking for the defense to just put the clamps on and then keep them on, give lots of guys plenty of opportunities to contribute. You know, even if Maiden is probably sitting by the, you know, mid-fourth quarter or something like that, you know, you want to see the offense be able to keep its pedal to the floor against this Idaho State Bengals defense because not a lot of established playmakers speak up on, on that side of the ball. It's, you know, you, you want to see San Diego State walk away with this one. So SP Plus, for instance, sees the Aztecs winning this one by 32.3, 97% win probability. They should win by more than that. They got off to a little bit of a sluggish start against Idaho State last year, but this is not the same offense that we saw when they played these same Bengals last year. Aztecs, I think, are a little bit better overall at this juncture. Bengals, probably a lot worse overall at this juncture. Give me the Aztecs big. I'm going to say 42 to nothing. Lastly, to wrap up the weekend, we move to Sunday. Sunday afternoon, over the air, CBS, 12.30 Pacific, 139. Number 18, Oregon State, traveling to San Jose State to take on your San Jose State Spartans. Oregon State goes into the game as a 16.5-point favorite. And it's sort of an interesting line because you know, we, we know what Oregon State was able to accomplish last year. Like, that's not a shock. You know, they have a very powerful running game. Damian Lewis, no doubt that he's the number one guy in that offense, you know, after averaging over six yards of carry last year. And no, by the way, you know, the guys behind him still pretty good in their own right. Deshaun Fenwick is still there. He averaged just under five yards of carry last year. And then other contributors who could feasibly step up and see a handful of carries in this game, you know, like Isaiah Newell. Even he, you know, he only had 16 carries last year, but he averaged almost five and a half yards per carry. So, like, we we have a sense of what Oregon State is probably going to want to try and do in this game. They're going to lean on on the ground game. They're going to lean on their strong offensive line, which still strong, even despite the fact that a couple of weeks ago, it, you know, news came out during fall camp that you know multi-year starter at guard Marco Brewer gone for the season. But this is still a unit, still an offensive line that has plenty of talent up front. Joshua Gray at left tackle, Jake Levin good at center. It's still a unit that's plenty capable of, of holding their own and doing a lot of damage. But I think if you're a Spartans fan, like you can feel pr- pretty good about what they were able to accomplish last week against USC. Trojans, as we talked about earlier, a similarly pretty good offensive line. 
And the Spartans were able to do at least a moderate bit of damage up front. You know, like I mentioned earlier, eight quarterback hurries, you know, a couple of quarterback hits. And, and with DJ Uyagulele under center, you know, he came in, transferred him from Clemson. He's very much, he is the guy. Like there's no or attached to that quarterback position on the depth chart or anything. He is not Caleb Williams. And so I think one of the big questions for this game is, yes, Oregon State has a, a just as good, if not slightly better offensive line than USC did. But I kind of liked what I saw from, from the replacements that the Spartans have put in place because we knew one of the big questions coming in this season, how are they going to replace Villayami Pahoko? How are they going to replace Cade Hall? Well, Trey Smith came out and had a pretty nice game himself last week. You know, had a sack, had a couple TFLs, two and a half to be exact. You know, he more or less picked up where he left off a couple of years ago when he had that sort of limited playing time before he didn't actually see that many reps last year. He had a solid game. Noah Vulo had a nice game. I think there is the potential there for this to be able to swing either way. I think the odds still do favor Oregon State in that regard. It would not shock me if Martinez went off for 100 yards in this game. And the, you know, the, the Beavers as a whole probably averaged about five yards a carry. I think if the Spartans want to pull an upset at home in this game, they need just a little more disruption up front, especially since after you, after you adjust for sacks from last week's game, they gave up more ground, more ground, you know, through USC's rushing attack than they are probably comfortable with after adjusting for sacks. 5.7 yards per carry allowed. And granted, maybe that some of that had to do with some of the big carries, some of the big plays that Austin Jones and company were able to have last week, but they need a little more consistency from that front seven to put pressure on Uya Galele to, to be that guy who can make the plays that, like, for example, Chance Nolan wasn't always trusted to when he was the starter over the last couple of years. So there is a situation where the Spartans can cause fits. And, and there is a situation, I think, where even despite the fact that, you know, the Beavers do have a couple of very talented pass catchers at DJU's disposal, Anthony Gould is still there. He averaged almost 17 yards of catch last year. He can stretch the field and do damage. We just saw it in non-conference play a year ago against both Boise State and Fresno State. He's still there. Silas Bolden is still there. He had some, you know, nice plays here and there. You know, he too, you know, had some, you know, damage, especially late in the year, especially in that bowl game when he had more opportunities to, to do some damage against Florida in the Las Vegas Bowl. They're going to be counting on him for more, but they won't be able to do anything if DJU can't do his part first. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on Smith, on Lavuo, on the other guys in that front six. We didn't even mention Brian Parham, who also had a pretty nice game last week. Those guys need to be the stars that I think that head coach Brent Brennan and defensive coordinator Derek Odom expect that group to be. But I think that the, the bigger mystery that I'm not quite as sold on on Oregon State as such big favorites is. I also kind of liked what you saw from San Jose State's offense last week, too. I wasn't expecting them to match USC drive for drive. 
But I think on the whole, you know, they had the one turnover for downs late in the game, but they took care of the football. They strung together a few nice drives. They maybe had, you know, more three and outs than they would have hoped. But yeah, I don't know how how stat broadcast, for instance, is is calculating drive success rate. But the Spartans left that week zero game with a 74% drive success rate. Not too shabby. And I think if you're looking for Siobhan Cordero to really sort of, you know, set a pace in this game, you know, even if Nick Nash isn't, you know, catching three touchdowns again, the Spartans have enough weapons that I think they feel good about that they should be a pretty good test for a defense that is is remaking itself in a lot of respects and may not necessarily have the players in place that can keep San Jose State from let me let me try to figure out a concise way to say this. I think there's a chance that San Jose State could do what it wants to do on offense, which is you know attack down the field and lead with the pass because Oregon State wasn't great at rushing the passer last year. And while they do have a lot of proven entities back up front to, to try and rectify that, you know, James Rawls on the interior, Isaac Hodgins on the on the uh, on the outside, guys like that. You know, Omar Spates is gone. You know, they you know have Calvin Hart Jr. and Easton Ma- uh, Mascarenas Arnold in that linebacker now. John McCartan is still there, but none of those guys are, are necessarily proven in the sense that they're going to you know flush Cordero out of the pocket and force him to make plays on the run in the same way that a lot of other defenses had had you know had a capacity to make him do at times last year they're also like a little bit banged up in the secondary as well you know Alton Julian's a, a longtime veteran but you know he's listed second on the depth chart because they're they're banged up a little bit here and there and so I do think that there's chance that with you know with just enough new faces in in the you know in the in the fold, Tyrese Ivy for instance you know was in a quarterback competition. He's he's a starter now. Well, what happens when he has to line up against Justin Lockhart or Charles Ross? I would imagine that Kevin McGiven, knowing what he has in Cordero, someone who's not afraid to take shots down the field. That they like their chances of you know one of their receivers coming down with a 50-50 ball if they choose to take that chance. You know, same thing, you know, you know, at linebacker position, Hart won that competition. You know, and we don't know what necessarily the Beavers are going to get with a new kicker in tow as well. That was an open competition, you know, between Everett Hayes and Atticus Sappington. Sappington, a redshirt sophomore, ended up winning that job. Uh, well, I mean, we'll see how that shakes out in the future because uh, Everett, I believe, or Hayes is is banged up a little bit as we go into week one. But there is a little more uncertainty on all three phases of the game than there was for the Beavers last year. And San Jose State is a good enough team, in my opinion, to be a thorn in the side of a squad like Oregon State where there are big expectations. I do think the Spartans are in a position to be able to challenge those expectations and give them a serious run for their money. So all that being said, you know, I don't know that the advanced numbers agree with my sentiment. SP Plus likes Oregon State by 21.6, 89% win probability. FBI also likes the Beavers 
by 11.5. Parker Fleming, his advanced stats preview gives the Spartans a 41.24% win probability, projected margin of 31 to 21. And I think that that sounds about right. Like, I don't know that Oregon State is necessarily potent enough on offense to be able to run away with this one, even if they have a stronger running game on paper than the Spartans do. I'm not sold on DJU until I see it. I want to see what he looks like in that offense with that crew of skilled position players around him. I think if there is anything that is likely to keep San Jose State at arm's length, it's the fact that I'm just not sure whether they're going to be able to get consistent enough pressure or consistent enough disruption to be able to slow that ground game or to to be able to take down DJU in a critical situation. So I like the Spartans to cover 16 and a half fairly easily, but I do think Oregon State's going to win that one on the road. I'm going to say 30 to 20. And all that being said, I have no idea how long this podcast is going to end up being, but I appreciate y'all sticking with me as I fly solo this week. I'm assuming that Jeremy will be back for our week one recap in a few days. But in the meantime, uh, enjoy the long weekend. We've earned it. You know, week zero, set the table. And now we are here. It, it, like if it was football season last week, now it's really, really football season. And I'm just as excited as everybody else to see what week one and beyond has in store. So until next time, I appreciate you sticking around through this. And hopefully we will have a lot of good news to talk about in a few days.